the local impact of the collapse of the FTX cryptocurrency exchange and a record number of Cubans coming to the U.S. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm Danny Rivero. Since the historic wave of protests last year, a record number of Cubans are fleeing the country to the U.S. We talk about why Cubans are leaving and how different levels of government are responding to the boats coming into South Florida. Also on the South Florida Roundup, how the sudden collapse and bankruptcy of the Bitcoin exchange FTX is directly impacting South Florida. From promised jobs FTX was supposed to bring to Miami to the naming rights of the arena where the Miami Heat play. Finally, a major property insurance bill was passed in Tallahassee this week. How could it impact property insurance for your home? All that and more on the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Danny Rivero, and welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. The communist island of Cuba is currently seeing the largest and fastest exodus that it's seen since Fidel Castro took power in 1959. More Cubans have left for the U.S. in the last year and a half than those who fled during the Mariel boat lift in 1980 and the rafter crisis in 1994 combined. Unlike those past waves, huge numbers of Cubans are showing up to the U.S.-Mexico border. But the situation has also brought about a major uptick of Cubans fleeing to Florida by boat, with many landing in the Florida Keys. Since October 1st of this year, the U.S. Coast Guard has intercepted more than 3,000 Cubans at sea trying to make it to Florida, more than half the number for the entire previous year. That's in three months. So the situation is actually accelerating. I recently talked with WLRN's Florida Keys reporter Gwen Filosa about the situation, And we were also joined by New York Times reporter Francis Robles. Both of them joined us from Key West. So, Frenchie, you recently did some reporting on Cuba about why we're seeing this historic surge in migration to the U.S. from Cuba. What did Cubans tell the New York Times about why they're making the choice to leave right now? You know, things in Cuba have always been bad, but I don't know that they've been this bad for many decades between the power outages, the food scarcity, the food prices. Um, it's just too many things, one on top of the other, all at the same time. And what you're hearing from people over and over and over again is there's no more hope. The hope is gone from Cuba, and that's why they're leaving. And one of the Cubans that your reporting partner in Cuba talked to had I mean, just a remarkable story because he has gotten a tattoo for each time he tried to leave Cuba. And that adds up to 11 tattoos on him now. And he and he says he doesn't plan to stop trying. Um, What did that person say about what keeps him motivated to keep trying? It was really remarkable to see the people who kind of lost their fear about speaking publicly uh, about wanting to leave. Everybody's leaving. Everybody wants to leave. They're packing, they're planning. Uh, Their their sister just left, their neighbor just left. Um, And they see the other side. They see the hope. They have relatives who are living uh, in the United States, many of them in South Florida. And uh, and they see hope on the horizon. The hope on the horizon is, is in Florida. And Gwen, speaking about the other side in Florida, You reported this week that just between Sunday and Tuesday of this week, more than 120 people from Cuba landed in the Keys on homemade boats. Um, It's just a small snapshot of what we're seeing, which is, you know, a lot of people are coming by land, but a lot of people are taking to the seas. 
what are local and federal officials here on this side of the straits saying about this steady stream of boats that are coming now? The Coast Guard and Border Patrol have said, well, you know, we've brought in extra personnel and we were bringing down people. But I spoke to a Coast Guard member who came down from Maine. You know, I ran into him walking a dog and he just said, they're bringing people in left and right. They're strapped. They're going out in boats uh, one right after the other. And it's even even the, the, the spokespeople that I call to get information just sound so harried. And I did speak with someone at the Coast Guard who said they, they've had to bring down, you know, commanders because they up north, they can't, or D.C., they can't comprehend the what's going on. And um, actually, the, there were there were more landings that happened after that as that story was being published. And um, down here, it's just become a nonstop. It's almost to the point where, I mean, locals are just so used to them, it, it, used to seeing them. And, and it, it's become part of the of living here you know we just we'll have five or six across the keys a day and just for our listeners perspective to to wrap our heads around how many we're talking about just since october 1st of this year the coast guard has intercepted and this is uh, a wednesday number three thousand seven three thousand three hundred seventy cuban migrants at sea which is already more than half the number that were intercepted for the entire previous year and you know, we're only three months or so into that. So it's it's a huge uptick. And Danny, that's the people got intercepted. How many people got through? People wouldn't be doing it if their neighbors, their siblings weren't successful in those journeys. And even seeing the number of people who die at sea, the Coast Guard says 100 Cubans have died since 2020 trying to make this voyage. That is still not stopping people. And I'll just mention a few months ago, I had the chance to fly on a U.S. Coast Guard plane. And while we were in the air, we spotted three Cuban rafters in the lower Bahamas. They were on a boat that was visibly sinking. And so I watched as the helicopter flew in from mainland Florida, plucked them out of the water, essentially saved their lives. Um, Gwen, when, when you talk to federal officials, what, what do they say about how many people that they're actually saving in the water i mean this is a humanitarian issue correct i mean it's it's a it's a humanitarian crisis and it, you will see heartbreaking video of people being rescued being you know, drowning recently a cruise ship spotted people in the water and gave them assistance as was said earlier i mean there were about 2300 people who have landed in the keys in that same time period they count through the fiscal year the feds uh, october 1st through october they haven't seen numbers like this in decades but um it is to see these photos of people you know families or people just suffering to make that trip it it never it it, it still just gets me every time and i've been here for 10 years and Gwen, I remember a few years ago, I went to the Key West Botanical Garden, and they actually had a collection of Cuban rafts that were collected over the years. So, I mean, obviously, this is not a new phenomenon, but with so many boats coming in, I mean, what are local officials, local governments, like, what are they actually doing with the rafts once they get here? That That's a great question, because people ask all the time, and a friend of mine who's an artist has actually years ago started doing pieces. They're, they're extraordinary of oars and, and boats that are found. I mean, they're tagged and they're kind of um, state wildlife officers, I, I believe are supposed to 
take care of them, but they're they're tagged and they're just kind of left there. And there was, it's rare. Most people I know will respect them, but I, some woman on Facebook once posted how she went through one and found $9 and she was going to send it back. And I mean, it's just, but most people do respect them. And there are art exhibits from uh, the uh, Mel Fisher Museum downtown has one permanently, uh, a chug, as they call them, a rustic boat that it's outside and it's right off to Wall Street. And it's amazing to see it. And they have um, information posted about the migration. Frenchie, I, w- I want to ask you that it's it's a bit taboo for some people to acknowledge in South Florida, um, but the increased U.S. sanctions against Cuba over the last couple of years have really impacted the material conditions on the island. And that's clearly a major factor in this exodus that we're seeing. But that also takes place on the backdrop of a major wave of political repression after last year's historic protests. You know, there's, according to human rights groups, more than 700 political prisoners being held as a result of those protests. Um, When you and your colleagues talk to Cubans living on the island, and they're thinking about leaving, do they bring up the political repression part of that equation? Some people bring up the political repression. There's a fair number of people that participated in the protests of last summer and uh, got arrested and they felt like, oh, ever since that, you know, they they keep harassing me, I better get out of here. But it's clear that there's also a a larger number of people that um, are are oppressed by the poverty. Um, They're also oppressed by... I was going to say oppressed by oppression. I don't know. If that's, I don't know if that even makes sense. Uh, I, this, the stifling lack of freedom, uh, in addition to the poverty, is just too much for a lot of people to bear. And and I suppose the sense that, you know, in a democratic society, you can voice your opinion openly about what can make things better, but you can't you can't do that in in Cuba. So there, where's the hope in that? Right. Exactly. And. Frenchie, also the, the the Biden administration recently took some steps to try to reduce the amount of Cubans coming to both the U.S.-Mexico border or coming to Florida by sea. Can you walk us through a little bit of what President Biden and his administration are doing on that front to stop these irregular arrivals, as they call them? That's an important point. With as many people that are coming by sea, the gigantic stampede is coming by land. They're coming through Texas. Uh, One of the things that the Biden administration tried to do and was not successful is that they tried to get the airlines to try to stop flying from Havana to Managua, because that's where the first leg of the journey is by plane from Cuba to Nicaragua. And then they make the rest of the journey on, um, you know, foot bus, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and they got some of the airlines to stop the the trips, but then other airlines just took their place. Like the market was so there that too many airlines were unwilling to, to shut down that corridor. Um, you're also going to start seeing the Cuban government will start accepting deportees. Uh, I don't know how many people that's going to be, but they're hoping that that serves as a deterrent. And the other big move that the Biden administration announced recently is that they're going to start processing visas again. Uh, It's been a number of years that the U.S. Embassy in Havana has not been um, staffed. So if you had 
wanted to apply for a legal visa to come to the United States and, and rejoin the rest of your family, you were unable to do so. You had to take some ridiculously circuitous journey to Guyana or someplace like that in order to visit an embassy. And so, again, but that's only about 20,000 visas a year. So it's kind of a drop in the bucket. Um but I think that they're hoping that several different things taken together will try to stem the tide. But unless the conditions on the island improve, they have quite a task ahead of them. We're talking about the huge uptick in Cuban migration to the U.S. by land and by sea that we're seeing right now, especially play out in the Florida Keys. And we're joined by WLRN Florida Keys reporter Gwen Filosa and also by Francis Robles, a reporter with The New York Times. Gwen, a few months ago, Monroe County Sheriff Rick Ramsey put out a call to state and local governments and the federal government to be prepared for this huge uptick in in boats arriving to the Keys, which I will mention are also coming from from Haiti right now because of a separate crisis in that country. Um, What kinds of aid is the local government in the Florida Keys asking for? Is it medical aid, housing for the new arrivals? I mean, my understanding is, uh, Sheriff Ramsey, they they want law enforcement, people that can help with responding to these incidents. Other than bottled water and kindness and some food, I haven't seen organized um, efforts by any government to for housing or for anything like that. The concerns from law enforcement are just having more hands on deck to respond and to coordinate. Um, It is tasking, it's a humanitarian crisis, but it is tasking uh, resources in Monroe County. And um, the medical examiner has, I don't have the exact number, but there are bodies that are there in um, identification process. I I don't know where it is right now, but it it is tasking a a small county with, um, you know, really important work. And and I want to ask both of you, because both of you live in Key West, and this is something that you're in the middle of on a professional level, but also on a, on a personal level. Um, and, and I want to ask, I'll, I'll start with you, Frenchie. I mean, ha- has this surge of boats arriving in the Keys become something that regular people are talking about? Is this like dinner table conversation? Or is this something that's kind of happening in the background for most people, where it's easy not to take notice of it? I think it's happening kind of in the background, Uh, you know, but just a point of reference, I actually was here in 1994 for the Cuban rafter crisis. Um, So that was a very different moment. You know, you there was hundreds or or if not thousands of people arriving every day. They were literally, you know, wet and they're rolling up in a tire. Um, And it was a it was on the front page every moment and it was a huge deal. I don't think that the United States has quite woken up to what's happening so that this is what's happening now is far, far, far bigger in terms of numbers than what happened in 1994. But because you don't see them yourself uh, and they're not arriving all in unison, the American public is kind of asleep at the switch at this mass migration that's happening under their noses. Uh, The only time that I will say that the people on the shore, for sure, you can see it. You asked earlier about the boats. They just leave them there if the government doesn't get them in any timely fashion. So as you walk along the beach in the mornings, I like to ride my bike there. 
it's you just see all these little Cuban boats uh, just dumped there after Hurricane, right before Hurricane Ian. They um, they did collect some of them out of the water. I guess they were afraid they would become projectiles. But I don't know. I don't know that everybody realizes the what's happening. And Gwen, uh, same question to you. I mean, just from your personal perspective, is this something you think regular people in the Keys, people that don't follow or report on the news, is this something that people are taking notice of? I agree that it's in the background and it's something that's become scenery. There's a lot of compassion in Key West, but I don't see that people understand. It's almost looked at as, oh, I saw a landing and I got video and how exciting they they made it. You'll hear people say that. And recently there was an extraordinary video in Marathon and a man took this video and he was cheering in Spanish to the Cuban people like hit the street, get to the street. But I don't hear people grappling with the, the tragedy that's going on with I, I think it's become so normal I, I don't it's become something that I mean uh, the Miami Herald when I worked there we I'm still colleagues with them we it was a, always a story and at one point it was like well you know there it, it's happening you know four times a day how do we approach this and it's so I can't express enough how it's just become a part of your everyday seeing these but it's background I, I don't see that people see it as anything more than sort of excitement. I don't know. But there, there's a lot of compassion here. It, it's just not something I hear people. Um, and in yeah, seeing the boats just discarded and sitting there, it's sort of, I think that speaks for itself. Danny, one one thing that's really interesting, I think where you're, where all the talking is going on is in Cuba, because in Cuba, it's all anyone's talking about. It's you know, that, that so-and-so left, that the neighbor's house is boarded up, that somebody else is living in the neighbor's house. Um, the sheer numbers is nothing short of astonishing. I mean, you have almost a quarter of a million people in a single year. That's 2% of Cuba's population. That's the doctors, the engineers, the the drivers, the teachers. It portends real, real, real trouble for Cuba's future. And one of the sources you you all talked to in, in your article this, this week in the New York Times likened it to a depopulation, just a flat-out depopulation that's happening in, in Cuba. She said Cuba's on the run. Cuba is a nation on the run. And as, you know, we're at the end of the year, um, the calendar year, um, is, is, is there any indication that this is going to slow down at any point or um frenchie i'll ask you first um do you think this is something we're going to see continuing to play out into the new year i mean i think they'll take a break for christmas you know if you're leaving your family forever you might as well spend the holidays with them first um and i would imagine that it's going to pick right up after the holidays and gwen um what are you know what? What are the what is the sheriff's office, law enforcement, etc.? Are they prepared for it? Is are they do they have the resources necessary to engage with so many people that they're expecting? Again, I asked that question to some people, some sources this week, and they were saying yes, we rotate in people, but I mean, it's clear that they're strapped and that they're. I'm going to say a little overwhelmed with the the numbers and the Coast Guard 
had sort of prepared for for this. It's not, I mean, they, they know what's going on in the water and Border Patrol knows what's going on with landings. I guess they will just keep bringing down people from Maine and other states as far as Coast Guard and uh, Border Patrol agents go. Gwen Falosa is the WLRN reporter in the Florida Keys, and we're also joined by Francis Robles, who's a reporter with The New York Times. Gwen, Francis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you all. Still to come on the South Florida Roundup, after a massive deal made for naming rights of the Miami Heat Stadium, what does FTX's fallout mean for the city and the county? You can call us at 800-743-WLRN. I'm Danny Rivero. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. The abrupt collapse of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX has become a major international and national story. FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried was arrested in the Bahamas at the request of the U.S. earlier this week. Damian Williams, the top prosecutor for the Southern District of New York, called the collapse of FTX one of the biggest frauds in American history. At the same time, the collapse of FTX is a major event for South Florida. The company was in the middle of moving its headquarters to Miami, and the arena where the Miami Heat play still bears the name FTX Arena. We want to hear from you for this segment. You can call us at 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576. And you can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining us now to talk about the collapse of FTX and its impact on South Florida is Carly Wana, a reporter with Bloomberg News. And also joining us is Christina Boomer Vasquez, a reporter with WPLG Local 10. Carly and Christina, thanks for joining. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Um, Carly, let's start with you. Um, just top level things um, before we get into the nitty gritty of the fallout of the collapse. Can you just give us a helicopter level view of what exactly happened here? I mean, what do we know about why or how FTX collapsed so suddenly? Wow, that <laughs> is a good question. There are, I would say, a lot more things that we don't know than what we do know. But the the rundown is basically that you had this exchange, you had this company with FTX, and you know it was a relatively trusted player in the cryptocurrency space. You know their CEO Sam Bankman-Fried would often go on. I work for Bloomberg, Bloomberg TV. He would go in front of politicians. He would tout the need for regulation in the cryptocurrency space. They were a company that was seen as very successful. They had a lot of philanthropic ventures. And it turns out that that was all basically built on a house of cards. You know, in November, things started to unravel. There were questions about whether the, the money that was held on the exchange was actually backed. And as customers kind of flocked to withdraw their money, they, they didn't have it. So the company last month um, in November, mid-November, early November, they filed for bankruptcy. And there's been <laughs> a lot of questions since. Most recently, there have been some charges filed against the CEO, Sam McMinfried, for basically committing and running a fraudulent scheme. And when he also, I should say, he filed for bankruptcy with FTX, as well as 130 related entities, and many of them had overlaps. Specifically, there are questions about FTX, which is an exchange, kind of like a crypto bank online, and Alameda Research, which was the trading arm 
And you would hope that those would be pretty separate. Turns out, and what it looks like is that they weren't as separate as we may have thought. <laughs> and Car- Carly, the Miami Mayor Francis Suarez has been a major booster of cryptocurrencies in general. And on that basis, he's reached a level of national fame for that advocacy. He even brought a, a Bitcoin bull to downtown Miami, which you can see <laughs> at the Miami-Dade uh, Wolfson campus. Um, and then that's to match the the famous bull of Wall Street. And before the spectacular collapse of FTX, uh, Mayor Suarez helped convince FTX to actually move their headquarters to Miami. Um, at this point right now, post-collapse of FTX, uh, what do we know about those plans, where they were, and where they stand to move FTX to Miami? Right. So it should be said that FTX already had a presence in Miami. It had a smaller office also located in the Brickell Financial District. And they'd set up, after that, um, a headquarters in Chicago. Quickly, they changed tax. You know, earlier this year, they announced that they wanted to move their headquarters from Chicago to Miami and kind of set up a camp there, make it into the FTX US headquarters. As part of that, they hadn't officially announced the building, but we learned that they were eyeing property at 1450 Brickell Avenue. 1450 Brickell Avenue is, you might have seen it, it's a really beautiful building. It's, I think, 35 stories, kind of a luxury tenant, you know, BCG, J.P. Morgan Chase, their tenants at the building itself. So they were eyeing property there, and it goes for $9 per square foot. We know that they were also encouraging employees to move down to Miami to presumably work out of those headquarters. And, you know, as far as how far it went, it's hard to tell, but in November, when they filed for bankruptcy, needless to say, that put a wrench in those plans. And Christina, I want to bring you into this um, conversation. Um, Another major footprint that FTX has left on Miami is the fact that the county government-owned arena where the Miami Heat plays is, as of now, still named the FTX Arena. I just passed it on the train this morning, and there it is. And that was part of a 19-year one hundred thirty-five million dollar naming rights deal for the arena, and a payment of five point five million dollars is actually technically due in just a few weeks. Um, where does that deal stand right now, Christina, in the in the midst of the bankruptcy and this overall collapse? And I loved how you started there too with this segment about making that reference and that it still bears the name, right, FTX Arena. Because- because a lot of my reporting actually started with trying to answer viewer questions about why that is. And it was also after reading through that Commodity Futures Trading Commission complaint. That's one that of the two civil complaints. Our county-owned sports arena, the home of the Mighty Heat, get a bit of a shout-out in that complaint where they, they reference the naming rights to a professional sports arena in Miami. And as you read through the indictment in those two complaints, as you sort of read those three documents together, you can see that that arena here in Miami, again, the county-owned building, was really, according to these regulators and prosecutors, one of the aspects of the razzle-dazzle, they say, of this fraud scheme that he, he pitched to investors, right? He has these slick ads. He has these celebrity endorsements. And look, he had the naming rights to this arena as a way to project part of his PR machine, right, to project the success that was there. So as we started digging into this, 
you may remember it was after FTX filed for bankruptcy. So this precedes um, the arrest of Sam Bankman-Fried. We have the county making announcement, and I'm staring at the motion right now. They filed a motion in bankruptcy court asking essentially a release from what's called an automatic stay. So as soon as they went into bankruptcy, there is a stay on any kind of um, changes that could happen with anyone in relationship and conversation with FTX. And here, Miami-Dade County in this motion is essentially asking the bankruptcy court for permission to terminate the naming rights agreement. And here they want to mitigate against their damages. They don't want, obviously, to be affiliated. You can see that language in this motion with FTX and light, especially now if you consider all the civil and criminal charges its founder faces. But there's an interesting line here. You had mentioned, you know, how the county has already uh, received close to 20 million for the first two years. There's that upcoming payment you referenced, uh, about 5.5 million expected in January. Hard to say at this point whether FTX would even be able to fulfill that. And there's a line in the motion that says, actually a failure to make a payment required on the naming rights agreement constitutes a default that triggers the right for Miami-Dade County to terminate the naming rights agreement. So until this plays out in bankruptcy court, there was supposed to be a hearing today that has now been rescheduled for January 11th. That FTX arena name will stay on the arena until they get permission from the courts to sever that those naming rights. And, you know, in terms of the county mayor and the county's initiatives, you may remember that the money coming in from this naming rights deal was pledged uh, to support the initiatives and that peace and prosperity plan. So here I'm at right, the, county. The, the, the anti-youth gun violence um, program that the county used that money for. That's exactly right. And this all came out of uh, one particular summer. There was just uh, an uptick in incidents involving youth gun violence. This peace and prosperity plan was developed. And there are these funding initiatives in there to combat poverty, um, to mitigate against youth gun violence. And so the money that's coming in from this naming rights deal is funding what are considered to be very high priorities for the county mayor and for Miami-Dade police that you might remember were kind of at the helm of a multi-jurisdictional effort in this space. And so also in the motion here to the bankruptcy court, you can see some of that language reflected here where they also want to be able to sever these naming rights agreements so that way they can find somebody else, right, to right, be able right. to continue that funding. And um. So there, there was a lot there. Thank you for for laying that all out. Um, so it sounds like, you know, if if FTX is unable to make that payment within a few weeks, then potentially it will no longer be FTX Arena. Um, but Christina, what what does the Miami Heat say about the fact that this is kind of all up in the air right now? If they're saying anything, nada. Absolutely zero. No comment from the Miami Heat. Um, we also reached out to the Miami Heat for comment about. When I saw how the arena was mentioned in one of these complaints, right, and the complaint that it's mentioned in is the Commodity Futures Trading Commission complaint, um, I did also want to explore, we already know that U.S. authorities, as they move forward through this legal process, will begin to, you know, try to claw back some of this money. Again, it's essentially what they're alleging is a almost classic traditional fraud scheme, misusing of customer funds, redirecting it to personal gains. Um, we know they're going after, for instance, uh, the properties he purchased in the Bahamas uh, with a misuse of funds. So the question is, OK, well, then in this case, uh, is Miami-Dade County going to be on the hook, so to speak? Right. So if they've already received this money from FTX as this moves forward, could U.S. authorities then try to claw that back? 
And so to sort of explore that, I reached out to a former state and federal prosecutor, David Weinstein, who reviewed the, the most recent documentation we have along with me. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing. It's, it's a little bit stay tuned because, you know, he said on one, on one aspect, prosecutors could argue, look, yes, you were given $20 million, but that is tainted money because of, again, what they have said is one of, you know, the biggest fraud schemes in U.S. history. Um, and therefore, we're going to go after it just as much as we would the properties. Wow. Um, so <laughs> um, there's a, there's a lot there. Um, very classically Miami scheme, if you if you will, <laughs> the capital of fraud. Um I'm Danny Rivero. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN, and we're talking about the fallout of the collapse of the FTX cryptocurrency exchange. We're joined by Bloomberg reporter Carly Juana and also by Christina Boomer Vasquez, a reporter with WPLG Local 10. Um, Carly, I want to ask you, um, the, the city in Miami in particular has positioned itself as being the most crypto forward city in the country, to quote Mayor Francis Suarez. And you know, the city is moving right now to potentially even pay city workers in Bitcoin. That could happen. Um, you know, the, the mayor's pushed to allow residents to pay taxes in Bitcoin. Uh, and then, you know, the the collapse of FTX, this marquee company that was, you know, lured to Miami, essentially. Um, I mean, what, what what does this mean for the future of efforts of a city like Miami to become like a crypto city. Yeah, it's interesting. My colleague actually, Felipe Marquez, who lives in Miami, he is the Miami bureau chief. He he posed that exact question to the mayor, and the mayor basically just said they're plowing full steam ahead, right? In a lot of ways, don't get me wrong, FTX is a it's a massive company, very important in the crypto space. It's not the only one that has set up shop in the crypto space. I mean, the week that I was there, and there are two conferences going on, probably a ten minute walk from one another. There were dozens and dozens, more like hundreds, probably hundreds of creators, founders, people who either had already set up camp in Miami or were moving down there. And, you know, talking to people, too, they made a good point that Miami's gone through, it's gone through phases of what it kind of touts itself as, you know, and it's not only a crypto center right now, it's also getting some attention from more traditional banking players. It's gotten attention from tech companies, too. So I don't think this really stunts that much Miami's plans to make itself into an innovation hub. You know, I think it more than anything, there's questions about what happens with crypto. And at least the mayor himself has said that they're plowing full steam ahead with the concept of trying to get more crypto companies to come down there. And Christina, you've spoken to people in the crypto community here in Miami since the collapse of FTX. Um, what what do they say about what it all means? What's what's the the kind of local perspective on it? I think what's interesting is I'd, I'd echo what she is saying. In part, it's because remember when you're looking through these charges here, this is not an indictment of cryptocurrency. This mm-hmm. is. Uh, crypto was just the commodity, right? That all of this that underpins it. But a lot of this is related to a, essentially a kind of traditional, for no lack of a better word, uh, fraud scheme. And you know, when it comes to the overall tech scene in Miami, um, just recently there was the announcement. For instance, when you know she talked a little bit about 
um, some of the investments that are coming in in terms of funders. But we have Northeastern University from Boston making a very big announcement that they're opening a campus in Wynwood. It's actually going to be helmed the first dean by Maria Alonzo, a banking executive for years in this town. She used to be the head of United Way Miami. And in their announcement, one of the key reasons why they're making this investment in graduate programs in Miami to start growing some talent in tech is because uh, of Miami's tech ecosystem and the belief that we could be the next Silicon Valley. And that kind of recognition from a well-known university brand, for instance, that's helping the ecosystem with things like talent. You hear that a lot from builders and developers and creators in the Miami tech scene about how much um, the academic aspect of everything is so important to incubate new talent. I think some could argue would speak to a success for the city of Miami. If you're looking at it through the prism of, you know, are you telegraphing that as a city you are open to innovation and technology, um, the kind of build it and they will come. And that that's that's a pretty recent announcement. So mm -hmm. um, I think some of these, some, some of what's, and, and you have to remember the Knight Foundation, I mean, they've laid down more than a decade of work um, building down and, and building up Miami's tech ecosystem. So I. I don't personally see from people I know in this space um, and some CEOs of some kind of Web3 companies that are Miami based. The impression I get from them is that that FTX is, is kind of almost like it's outlier. It's a big talker. It's a high profile, but it's outside of what they feel like is growing momentum in this area and in this industry sector um, right. that will keep on going. Right. There's a lot more going on. Um the last question I want to ask for you, um, Carly, on, on on the heels of this FTX collapse, um, which, again, you know, as was described by a top prosecutor in New York as one of the biggest frauds in American history. A bipartisan bill was introduced in the U.S. Senate that would aim to regulate these cryptocurrency exchanges the same way other financial institutions are regulated. Um, I mean, quickly, like, what's the chances of this actually passing and if it does pass, is this kind of the end of the Wild West era when it comes to cryptocurrencies? It's a good question. I don't have much of an insight on how likely it is that the law itself will pass. What I will say is that there has been bipartisan support for trying to get some sort of regulation passed. I mean, this was something, the collapse of FDX, it impacted a lot of people. They lost money. Normal people who had money on that exchange are at risk of just not getting it back. So, of course, it is something that government officials are going to take note of and take very, very seriously from a regulation perspective. But the questions of how to regulate cryptocurrency are very, very complicated. I mean, it's a burgeoning asset class. It's something that has been on the minds of federal regulators for years and years. And maybe this will be a real kick to get people to do things, but it will not be an easy fix at all. And the questions of regulations are very high in people's minds now. So one would hope that there would be action on this front. Carly Juana is a reporter with Bloomberg, and we were also joined by Christina Boomer Vasquez, a reporter with WPLG Local 10. Carly and Christina, thank you both so much for coming onto the South Florida Roundup. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Still to come on the South Florida Roundup, another special session held for property insurance. How will the laws passed affect South Florida? You can call us for this one at 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576. I'm Danny Rivero. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. 
Florida has a housing insurance crisis on its hands. And if you own property, you know this already. And if you don't own property, you're still feeling the effects since the highest insurance rates in the country are passed on to people who rent. The crisis has been a long time coming, and for a long time, the state government has avoided taking bold steps needed to make things better. But this week, in a special legislative session, the Florida legislature says they did just that, while opponents say it's actually going to make things worse for property owners and consumers, at least in the short term. We want to hear from you on this segment. You can call us at 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576. And you can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining us now to talk about this is Mary Ellen Kloss, who covers Tallahassee for the Miami Herald. Mary Ellen, thanks for coming on. Good to be here, Danny. Thanks. All right. So um, the property insurance crisis absolutely did not come out of nowhere. Um Earlier this year, in May, the legislature already held a special legislative session that was aimed at tackling the crisis. Uh, I mean, Mary Ellen, why why was a second special session on the same topic needed within one year? Like, what did not get done last time that they say that they did this time? It's a really good question, and I think the answer has everything to do with the fact that this was an election year. Um, The solution for this problem requires... Uh, something that is not going to be popular with most people. It's it's something that is very, very popular with the insurance industry. And um, the bottom line is that the the solutions here are not going to lower people's rates in any anytime soon. They're going to limit it's going to limit the ability for people to, you know, have a lever to sue their insurance company or to uh you know, push back against disputed claims. And those are things that are probably could have been exploited in, a, in an election cycle. So they had to wait until the, the, the election was over. And here we are now. Um, they've passed these reforms. And, and the question is, will it be enough or will it make a difference? And Florida has by far the highest insurance rates in the entire country. And South Florida has some of the highest rates in the state of Florida. Um, How might the changes that were passed this week in the Florida legislature impact homeowners in South Florida, say people who have citizens insurance, which is the only option for a lot of people here? Right. So there's a couple answers to that. The number one hope by legislators is that they have done enough to uh, attract new capital so that there will be more insurance companies that want to come in and compete in this marketplace. Um, And as I said, rates are not going to go down so that people who pay high high insurance premium, a new company could come in and maybe underpay it just a little bit and offer some competition. So that's that's their hope. But um, there are all these other things that are that are the long time impact uh, or have an outside impact on rates. And um, the question is, uh, will those things change enough? Now, one of the things, as you mentioned, is that many people in South Florida have citizens property insurance, which is supposed to be the insurer of last resort. That is um, sometimes cheaper than the private options. And what this 
legislation is designed to do is to make sure that that is no longer the cheapest option. So if you are carrying homeowners property insurance right now from citizens, the odds of it going up in price are going to increase. And if you are offered um, an option by a private carrier that is that is within 20% of the rate you're paying now, you're going to be booted out of citizens and be required to take that new that new insurance. And there's one other thing that's going to happen, and that is that um, because of all the flood-related damage that we've seen after hurricanes Ian and Nicole, um, they want to be sure that anybody who's on the state-backed insurance has flood insurance. So um, if you have citizens, you're going to now have to also buy a flood insurance policy. And that's talking to me. <laughs> um, we we have a we have a caller calling from Miami. John, um, you're on the line. Thank you so much for calling in. Okay, thank you. Um, I had heard that the Florida legislature had recently approved one billion dollars to go to citizens to specifically pay to help them pay for reinsurance. In other words, more insurance for itself, citizens. I don't understand how this is going to help anything because uh, it's certainly not going to lower the home insurance uh, rates for people like me. And why not if the, we want to give some public money to citizens and you want to give them a billion dollars, why not, why not say, here's a billion dollars, but it's not to insure yourself more, it's to pay claims. And that's the only way it's going to help consumers. Uh and why, I don't know why uh, we have to pay for uh, citizens a reinsurance policy. I simply don't understand that. Th- thanks, thanks for that, John. Um, yeah, Mary Ellen, if you can explain at least what the legislature was saying that they meant to do by offering that one new $1 billion pot for citizens reinsurance. Yes, and this is really, you know, John gets at some of the complexities of insurance regulation. Um, The insurance market is not a free market. It is a heavily regulated one. And insurance companies don't make, you know, they don't hold all the cash on hand that they need when there is a big storm. They actually get insurance for themselves, and that's called reinsurance. It's basically the insurance companies going to a bigger marketplace to get um, insurance on their potential losses. So um, what's been happening, not just in Florida, but across the globe, is that all these climatic um, related and calamities, essentially, from you know, fires to uh, tornadoes to hurricanes and, and, and other natural disasters have re- resulted in enormous losses for these reinsurance companies, and they've been raising their rates. So for every dollar they charge to reinsure your insurance company, your insurance company passes that cost along to you. So the legislature's hope is that by a one-year um, subsidy of reinsurance to these private insurance companies, that 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 will help them sort of stabilize and stop raising rates on homeowners. Um, 
Now, the problem is that the reinsurance industry has already come out and said after the session this week that those those protections may not go far enough. And um, and there is a little bit of uh, a signal, at least from some of the people in the House, that we may have to come back and do some tweaks as early as January of next year. So in a, in a few so- weeks. <laughs> um Mary Ellen, I do want to ask because the day after this very industry friendly bill was passed, the state insurance commissioner, David Altmeyer, re- announced his resignation. Um, should we read into anything into that? Or I mean, what, what do we know about why he resigned from that position the day after this this bill was passed? Well, if if he if people were unhappy with his performance as insurance regulator, you'd think we would have heard about that by now. Um, I I do think there is uh, some dissatisfaction among legislators about how insurance has been regulated, but not that much. The bottom line, I think, the primary reason. Uh, David Altmeyer is leaving and many others in the administration are leaving is because there's a new law that's going to take effect on January 1st. And that is that anybody who is in a government job in state government right now or the legislature, you're banned from lobbying for six years. And uh, that ban, if if you don't leave now, you're that ban will apply to you. So um, the speculation is that is the principal reason why Mr. Altmeyer Meyer left. Um, he's also been in that job for several years and it's not unusual to see this kind of turnover, especially when enormous changes are, are taking place. In, but the other thing that happened is his deputy left and um, one of his longtime, one of the other longtime regulators in that office left about a month ago. We're seeing this exodus, and I think it primarily has to do with the fact that state law is changing. And one last question really quick. Um, you know, the fear of a lot of homeowners is that as rates continue to go up, people will not be able to afford it and will be priced out of their homes. Um, very, very quickly, how real is that prospect of things keep going on this at this rate? Um, I think from what I'm hearing, the, the state's consumer advocate, uh, insurance consumer advocate, is hearing from people on a daily basis that they're running into problems with paying both their insurance bill and their property tax bill and their mortgage. And uh, the question for a lot of people is, what are you going to drop? And so people are there's fears that this is going to lead to more foreclosures and more people kind of selling their homes and going, you know, going into trying finding rental property. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's Ma- it's definitely a problem. We're going to have to leave it there. Um, Mary-, Mary Ellen Kloss is the Tallahassee Bureau Chief for the Miami Herald. Mary Ellen, thank you so much for coming on. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And that'll do it for this week's South Florida Roundup. South Florida Roundup is produced by Natu Twe. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Our interim managing editor is Katie Munoz. Jessica Bakeman is senior editor for news. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. The vice president of radio and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mares. Richard Ives answers the phones. And I'm Danny Rivero. Thanks for calling and thanks for listening. WLRN Public Media.